0: Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. On today's episode, my conversation with Nancy Illman. Nancy is an artist, a mother, a holistic health practitioner, and most recently, the author of a new memoir, Instigator of Joy, Becoming My Own Fairy Godmother. In this episode, we dive into that memoir and cover many of the unique and interesting experiences throughout Nancy's life. We also discuss some topics that are critical to public health, including access to mental health care, nutrition, and healing intergenerational trauma. Please enjoy my conversation with Nancy Illman. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Marion. So great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Okay, so we're quickly going to just lay out how we met and I'm going to go right into the metaphor just because we met over cute. soup. And both of us with our ancestry have kind of realized that we are the melting pot, right? We are each an individual pot of soup. So we were work I was working for a company called Supergirl and we were looking for charismatic, health-focused people to help us sell some soup. Ambassadors. Ambassadors, exactly. And there you were. You showed right up and you enthusiastically sold that soup. So that is how we first met.
1: Crazy but true.
0: Crazy but true. And then luckily, thank goodness, through the magic of Facebook and the internet, we have stayed connected only to learn that we have so much more in common than just enjoying a vegetable puree. Yeah.
1: Locally sourced, vegan, chunky soup. It was good. The gazpacho.
0: The gazpacho. Very special. Legendary. Gazpacho season. It should be year-round, but it's hard to do it, you know, locally sourced. So we appreciate the seasonality. A favorite food. So, But now here we are today, and we're going to talk about so many things. One of them, of course, is your book, Instigator of Joy, which recently came out and which I have read, totally indulged in and taken many a note, many a little flag in there, highlights. And then we're going to just see where the magic takes us because the book um, and your work in general touch on so many critical themes, not just to... You know, my interest in public health, but also women's health and emotional wellness. So I'm excited to go on this journey. Terrific. I am too. Awesome. So let's start with the book. Um, Tell me a little bit about the name. It's called Instigator of Joy Becoming My Own Fairy Godmother. And I would love to hear about the process of developing that title. Did it just pop into your head? Was it worked on over time? And also, very curious. Did you entertain any other alternate titles?
1: Okay, multi-part question. I will try to organize my answer. Um, I began writing a memoir 19 years ago, and the working title then was Princess in Recovery. And I have been enriched tremendously by the process of memoir writing. And I, as I've grown and matured, I have graduated from Princess. To fairy godmother in my fairy tale world, in my imagination. So, um, I didn't think about that when I came up with this new title. It was after it had existed for a while and I was like, oh, look what I did. Um, but fairy tales, as you know, are a big theme. They influenced me as my, among my earliest literature sources and instigator was my working title for this. Um, And it's probably because my husband is always pointing out that I'm an instigator. And that has so many connotations. And I definitely have the mischievous instigator in me as well, which I don't think is separate from joy. But my friends, especially my friend Renee, who created this uh, lovely cover, suggested I needed to add of joy so people didn't think it was just like a naughty girl book. So that's how we got Instigator of Joy. And... Becoming My Own Fairy Godmother, it was suggested that I give a little more insight into what this was about. And that just popped up because it speaks to me. It speaks of me. So that's the story, the title.
0: Yeah. I actually love learning that because it's so hard for me. I mean, even just what I know of you and in the little time that I've known you, which is like, I don't know, six years maybe or five years, Mm -hmm. um... It would be so confusing to me without the word joy. I feel like instigator of joy is perfect. And um, in the story that you told about your Harvard reunion, where you put on this sort of instigator of joy masterclass, it totally makes sense. So I'm glad that you got that feedback from your friend yes, to tack that word on there because it really kind of makes it the perfect title.
1: Where would we be without our friends, Marion?
0: So true. And that's another theme we can get into—the importance of friendship, especially, in my opinion, female friendship and community. Yeah, definitely. Loneliness—that's why we live longer. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. critical to avoid loneliness. Um. So you mentioned that this was a twenty-year process, basically. Yeah. Which is crazy for me to think about because the only I haven't—I don't think I've done anything for twenty years. Uh, besides be alive. Oh no, no parent um,
1: 19 years of parenting.
0: I'm I'm almost at 18 years oh, okay. if you include the pregnancy, you know, then yeah, 18 do. and a half. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, 20 yeah. years. I've been doing is stuff a, a lot longer it's than It's a you stretch in this life. Right. Yes. So, let's let's hear about that. I want to hear about writing a memoir and I know this is something we briefly touched on um in a former conversation that you you do believe that Memoir writing is good for your health. Yes. So tell me about the process and how it benefited you.
1: Uh, first of all, I resisted, as I resist all advice, including Renee's suggestion of the title. I always say no. It's amazing. I'm just.
0: I can't relate at all. <laughs> I say with eyes rolling deeply into the back of my head, resisting advice on the first, my <laughs> first go I my impulse, my reflex is to resist
1: and dismiss, and then I reflect. And that is the value of spending time alone in silence, which is another thing that I learned in the process of writing memoir. I learned so much. Um, So about 20 years ago, when I was moving with my babies to a lovely ranch home in Wyoming, Ohio, I was getting a repeat message that it was time to start writing my book. The book of what I know. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. I didn't think of it as a memoir. So I just started writing stuff I know. And then I joined a listserv of writers and publishers and a woman on it. For some reason, I don't really know why she liked me, but she asked me to send her two chapters and she sent them back redlined. Mainly what she wanted me to do was show and not tell. Mm -hmm. I'm not trained in writing, but I know this is like a basic instruction. So she said, you need dialogue. And I know it's in your memory somewhere. So sit down and pull that up. The process of recreating scenes from my childhood was priceless because once I, and I did find them, once I pulled up conversations from my early childhood, I also have cassette tapes that helped. Um, I was able to look back on my childhood as an adult and as a parent. Not pretty, but illuminating. And it informed my parenting. It informed my self-concept and how, because I didn't have a manual. I don't know if you got one. I didn't get a manual for how to raise my children. I'm still waiting. And reflecting on my childhood was invaluable. So maybe that could be the manual (laughs) I suggested to everyone. Um... You just sort of have a sense of your childhood, but that exercise and that discipline um, was so helpful and informative. So I feel like there's been a cycle of writing drafts and putting them away and being uh, more deeply informed in my life, in my living from having done that writing work. And then I would repeatedly realize, oh, this is a really big job and I can't find the time or can't I'm not ready to make the time to see it to its conclusion. And so I would come back and I would sort of like ugh look at the old draft ugh and start over fresh. Yeah. And I was a different person. So I feel like I've lived the last 20 years in a cycle of reflecting, writing, being better informed, you know, raising maybe to the next level, learn the lesson from the lesson I taught myself living at a higher vibration and then writing a better draft of what I know because I know more. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. But it also brings up for me, um, how did you finally snap and decide this is the final draft? Because I have this problem even with papers. Like I went back to school and I had to write papers and statements. And I just had to choose a day that that that, that it was done. Yeah. Because otherwise – if I think, I'll just read through it until I'm, I'm done and I don't see anything I want to change, I will never read through it and not find something I want to change. So how did you, and I know, you know this is a book, not a paper, so you can't really be reading through the entire thing over and over and over, but how did you finally find that moment where you just said, I'm at peace, this is it, hit print, I'm done?
1: I think we're going to give you a little more information than what you're asking for, I knew that I was going to do the final iteration, not draft, but iteration of the book when my youngest left for college. I knew that thanks to my friend Karen, who modeled it for me. She was a triumphant empty nester, and I was approaching empty nest status with deep dread, bordering on panic. And so I seized on this idea, this project, and I said to all my children, as Isaac leaves, I am going to start writing my memoir in earnest, and I'm giving myself two years. And I think it's important. Any big goal, you should set the deadline right? and then forgive yourself if you're a couple of days late. But deadlines are important for goals, especially big ones. So that's what happened. And in terms of being done, I owe that awareness and... So much of the quality of this book. I'm really proud of this book and I wouldn't be if it weren't for my editor. I have seen, this is not polite. (laughs) I've seen, warning, (laughs) I've seen very intelligent, accomplished people self publish. And I know from the first page that they didn't have a professional editor because they know that they're very capable people. And I am grateful to them because I. Did win awards in, for my writing, law school, not that applicable to this. Like, I have the humility to know they don't know how to write a book. And the goal in writing a memoir is very different from a brief or an essay or a term paper, or things I've been successful in writing in the past. So, Karen said, Here's the editor I used. And that editor said, I am sending you to my protege. So grateful to both Karen and Alice for that process. Crystal Sertian is definitely a soulmate. I have not met her, but she's one of my best friends. <laughs> I look forward to meeting her in person. And she helped me know that we were done.
0: Okay, yeah. I think that that also resonates with me. Like sometimes you need that outside perspective to just give you some guidance on the framework and how to move forward and, and how to be done. Mm-hmm. So something else that I want to ask about in terms of the process of writing a memoir, which I've often thought about and noticed when I'm reading other biographies, uh, memoirs, etc., is that primary sources are very useful. And of course, back in the day, people were corresponding in letters. And, you know, I've read like the biography of um, Thomas Jefferson, let's say, right? And there's just a ton of his voice in there, because he wrote everything down. And you kept journals throughout your childhood. You had cassette recordings. um, Impressive. So you had a lot of primary sources. So I am curious, let's say someone wants to write a memoir, or even just like an autobiographical, in-depth essay but they didn't keep journals and they don't have recordings. Do you think that that is an insurmountable barrier to entry, or is it possible to do this work without the primary source material?
1: I don't think there's any insurmountable obstacle. Um, one thing that I do is help people get into a trance state and um, connect with, well, we're not sure what we connect with. Um, people call it inner wisdom, spirit wisdom, um, but without, in the trance state is very light. You're fully conscious, but it does help you access things that you don't do on your own. Um, journaling, I started journaling when I was 16. The cassette tapes, I spent a lot of time by myself. So listening to Mr. Rogers records in my room, and then I read books into the tape recorder. I recited poetry into the tape recorder. And then in the background, you can hear my mother screaming, um, When she found that someone had taken the grapes out of the refrigerator, things like that. So I have little tools, but writing prompts such as I received at Women Writing for a Change um, and really any writing workshop that you can find, there are some brilliant prompts out there. If you just free write, it's amazing what comes up. It's almost like a trance and Julia Cameron suggests as the foundation for her self-help book called The, the Artist's Way. Do you know oh, The Artist's Way? yeah, of way? course, of course. Okay, so she takes the 12-step um, culture of AA and creates this way for all creatives, because we are all creative, whether we're blocked or dormant or stale. And by um, engaging in morning pages— either in the bathroom or the bedroom, but not any more steps from sleep than that. Um, Just letting the pen move across paper. And I think the pen and paper are magical, non-technological tools. Mm -hmm. Um, Things come out of your head. And if you'll look at that, you'll see patterns. And that's the thing, like my drafts, I didn't know what my memoir, I didn't know the theme of my memoir when I started writing, but, Okay, that's a different. Yeah, I'm answering a question you didn't ask.
0: <laughs> okay, back. I love it. The, the
1: tool, the insert, the, uh, yeah, the letters.
0: Primary source yeah, material. Yeah, I, mean,
1: I do have letters. I used, did you do this in high school where you um wrote, or maybe before high school? I used to write during class to. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Of course. So we I, had,
0: we had like notebooks we'd pass back and yeah. forth between oh, girlfriends. I couldn't,
1: well, we would have gotten in trouble. So, I folded it in half, the loose leaf page, and then in half again, mm-hmm. and then uh, diagonally. So there was a triangle, and then you did a foldy thing, and you made a football, and you oh, then fli- you
0: flick the football. Flicked it. Yes, I have done the football. You note. could pass it
1: or flick it yeah. depending mm-hmm. on your skill. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I have those. Oh my gosh, so that's, amazing!
1: <laughs> see, you have more primary sources than you may be aware. Right, that's true. But that's true. Just keep dumping yeah. that early morning three pages. Or 10 minutes, and you'll be amazed what comes up.
0: I told you, I, I read this book, and there's a scene that... um That made you laugh. It made me laugh out loud, partially because it's funny, the visual is funny, and partially because of, like, the sort of self-humor that you experienced in the moment. I think at the end of the phrase, you say, like, who's clever now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I would love to hear you well, tell that story out loud.
1: I did feel very clever in high school. <laughs> I was two years younger than my classmates. I was in all the AP classes. So I thought I was the bomb. And so I thought it was very clever of me that on this very hot day where we were graduating, commencing out of high school, commencing out of high school? Yeah. In the football field, on the football field, on the bleachers. Our family was on the bleachers. We were sitting in rows of folding chairs. I wasn't going to make myself unnecessarily uncomfortable. I knew that girls had been shopping for dresses. I knew the boys were wearing suits. That's very uncomfortable.
0: Right. They're probably pouring <clears sweat.
1: <clears <throat> so no thank you. Going to outsmart everyone and wear my favorite bathing suit. So I wore a bathing suit under my rented polyester gown. It was really the gown that was uncomfortable. but right. So light and breezy in my folding chair with my cap and gown. And then... This is really, for me, a classic example of my not thinking ahead. I think that's one of my defining traits is is as much as I am proud to, to embrace the present moment, I am seen as a person with a deficit for circumspection, for how I might affect the people around me and what might be happening later that I maybe should have known. So,
0: so the bathing suit. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I had to go to the third floor. We were all told at the end of graduation, like as we got our diplomas, now go to the third floor, return your cap and gown. Like on my way up there. Okay. <laughs> I get it. So my parents and grandparents were in the car with room for me, I guess two cars with my sister, it must have been two cars, and they were waiting for me and I had to gracefully disrobe I was also wearing uh, a white leather wedge heel espadrille, very elegant, sure. matched the polyester gown. <laughs> so I was wearing a blue mayo style bathing suit with a maybe with a strap, maybe it was detached, so it wouldn't you know clutter my collar, and the white espadrilles. So I just had to find some dignity, and walk down the long third floor corridor down to the second floor landing, down to the first floor landing, down another hall, through the lobby. Like, it's not a problem. I'm just, totally this is fine. the bathing suit part of Miss America. Like, <laughs> it's we're poised. We It's like, I, I had watched Miss America cross the stage. Like, it wasn't a big deal that, what, millions of people are looking at her walk in high heels in a bathing suit. So just tried to channel that until I got to the car. Like, it's this is not humiliating or embarrassing I'm not self-conscious
0: acting amazing it's just such an incredible scene <sighs> I and I love picturing the, the look it. on your I mother's can. face and your grandparents face like <laughs> there's our proud graduate and you're just like uh-huh. not wearing any clothing how about
1: all the faculty advisors in the yearbook office yes you're just like uh-huh that's your choice for your graduation
0: outfit. <laughs> it's perfect. Enjoy lunch with your family. Have a good life. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, like, so one of the things that um, when I began to read the book, I realized that we had in common was being young for our grade. Mm-hmm. I went off to college when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, But still, even then, 16, which is how old you were when you graduated and went off to school. It just feels so young and I'm a mom to a teenager. She's uh, about to turn 18, which is wild. Mm -hmm. But there's no way that when she was 16, I felt like, Boop, boop, boop. Yep. Let's sh- this one's ready to be sent off into the world. And, you know, you told the story in the book about like your your dad stocking a little bar in your dorm room for you for socializing. <laughs> and meanwhile, like when my kid's 16, I'm like, no drinking. Don't even think about it. So, yeah, like, I mean, is it just that it was a different time or was no. there really this like precocious pressure on you to just to no. launch
1: uh, there was so much pressure. I think they were really tired of having me. My mother especially just tired of having me at home. Um, but bragging rights also, that they felt they attached status to sending me off. And my mother had gone to college at 16 also. Hmm. Um, my grandmother said that my mother was bored, I think, in second grade. and She was misbehaving. So they decided to put her in third grade. Hmm. that's what happened yeah so that was it i mean to me that's a different time obviously my life is a normal time and <laughs> before that is strange <laughs> uh, but but seriously going to college at 16 in the when was it the 50s uh 50 whatever yeah 50s um everyone was a virgin And there was no co-educational dorms and, uh, well, every good girl, girl was a virgin. And, um, the, the expectations, like what you needed maturity for, I think was different. But anyway, that was normal to me. I knew my mother's story and I started second grade at five. So I was always on track. It wasn't like I accelerated. I just started, uh, I was placed into second grade as you heard as you read um, when I was 5. So each time I mean it didn't surprise me that you mentioned your daughter because each time one of my three children was 16 it was just was like a stab in my heart like oh my gosh for a little me mm-hmm. because they're li- they're little and they yeah. need they need parents. Yeah. But my parents it was. I think it was okay that I started distancing myself at sixteen. I just would have liked to have gone to a place that was more of more of a in, in loco parentis than Harvard is. I did not go to a nurturing college. I think it would have been lovely to go to Bard or Wellesley, a place that noticed me as a person and talked to me, that yeah. kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. And <laughs> and I have like a different but similar thing where. You know, I went off to college at 17, and I got into a bunch of schools, but I got into Cornell, and Cornell was the most impressive school, and Cornell was the school my mother had gone to. And so Mm -hmm. despite the fact that if you had really made a list, pro-con list with many of the schools, it wouldn't really necessarily have come out on top for my personality and my unique interests and and what I, like, hoped to do every day, it came out on top for prestige, Mm -hmm. for bragging rights, Mm -hmm. right? So... Um, we all have to live our own, our own unique path and, and that's part of, part of mine and part of yours. And I also just think like, I mean, you mentioned your mom going to college at 16 in the fifties and how many women were even going to college? Um, or how many, how many families were like, like really encouraging young women to go off to school? Because I don't know, like. Well, I guess maybe 20 years earlier, it would have been more surprising, right? Maybe by the 50s, that's more normal. But in the 30s, it would have been sort of shocking because my my... grandfather
1: was an immigrant who um, was being raised in Poland to be a rabbi. And he Mm -hmm. ran away from that destiny and went to Pratt and became a chemist and was a successful business person. So he was definitely sending his two daughters to college to become the next the post-immigrant generation of yeah. professionals or married to professionals yeah yeah
0: and he was being trained to be a rabbi yeah wow
1: well the expectation yeah as an as a bright curious boy that was status in in the shuttle
0: right and where was he from um
1: it's in uh Sh- okay poland yeah schnadova poland, poland. Mm-hmm.
0: interesting very interesting. I
1: think I pronounce it wrong. Well, That's why I was hesitating. But oh well, we'll have to get
0: our Polish listeners to comment on that. Polish listeners, please, please write in the it's comment hard below. To
1: find this town anywhere, but I know it's at Yad Vashem. It is
0: yeah present there and like a you know Jewish community predominantly still, right, which was wiped out. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We have that in my family too, but mm-hmm. in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, those communities. Yeah, you know, my grandmother's from Ukraine. Oh. His
1: wife. Interesting. They met at Coney Island.
0: oh Over a cotton Changing candy? Changing into or... bathing suits. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and she, she and was s- hot. And so it foretold your future. See, bathing suits play a really critical <laughs> role in your family legacy. <laughs> That's
1: great. I didn't hear that story from my grandmother until after he passed away. And I went to visit her. And um, I, just, I just started interviewing her to get stories that I hadn't heard. Yeah. She was in her
0: 90s. Yeah. That's when I heard about the bathing suit. Cute, oh, my meet, gosh. cute. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I was thinking about when you said earlier that you're not someone who's known for, you know, looking ahead, let's say. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed for this podcast my grandpa, who's 98. I love that episode. Yeah, isn't he? He's so yeah. great. Oh, I love him. Grandpa, if you're listening, I love you. Um, love you too, grandpa. Oh, you really would. You really yeah. would. He's so great. But I, you know, I asked him like, so like looking ahead to the future, like when you were young, how did you plan your future? Like you were so successful. And he was like, I didn't plan shit. He was like, what? Planning? No, I just sorry to to disappoint you. But I was just living moment to moment. So Mm -hmm. that actually was a sort of a nice reflective and soothing moment for me because we do hear a lot of like you have to plan and the five year plan and the 10 year plan. And I do believe in having a vision board and and goals. Goals, But but I also like just letting it flow, Mm -hmm. letting it flow and seeing where it goes, such as in this conversation. Yes. (laughs) Okay, we're going to bring it back to the book. Okay, so I'm going to read from page 41. Um, There were quite a few quotes in the book that jumped out at me, but this one really hit me and I just wanted to hear you expand on it a little bit because I think it's very important. You wrote, both my parents were disappointed by what they saw as my choice not to follow the paths they envisioned for me. I would need to discover my distinct gifts and learn to value them on my own. Whew. Yeah.
1: I recently learned that some people hire career counselors for their children to plumb their personalities and assess their desires. Wow. We've come a long way. (laughs) That's beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. And I now recommend that to people who tell me, I think my daughter might want to do this. I'm like, did you know? Um, That was the farthest thing from my parents' mind. My father, as you know, made this cryptic remark to me, and my kids were like, why didn't you ask him what he meant? I never asked follow-up questions of my father, way too intimidated, but he said, you're going to be an underachiever like me. Okay. Yeah. Moving along. Um, I found out after my eldest bar mitzvah, when somebody, a troublemaker, you know who it is, um reported the conversation from the hotel bar that my father is devastated that I turned out this way, (laughs) that I'm not the CEO of a Fortune 500 corporation. Never once did he mention this career option. He may have mentioned business school, and I didn't notice, but it was really surprising that he saw me through that lens. The one time my father said something about business to me, was when i called an emergency meeting with my parents when i found out that i was working for a gray marketer in new york i was horrified and i had quit my first job after college to stick it to the man and they were like okay well you you blew through that first job really fast so you have to keep the second one to show that you're not a nut job i am a nut job but (laughs) you're like jokes on them (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't claimed it yet. I wasn't ready to claim it. And um, actually, I was not dreaming. Oh, this is such a tangent. But I was not dreaming about this last night. But I was lying in bed thinking about that first job at Macy's where I was in charge of maintaining inventory. Um, I don't even know what I was supposed to be doing, honestly. Selling, but all these grown-up things that I didn't want to do that I didn't do and supervising and managing a staff of salespeople and stock boys and whatever I was supposed to be doing. These delightful people in visual merchandising, some, wi- some women, um, I don't know their orientation, but some lovely gay men and some women were the visual merchandising crew. And I wanted, I knew I wanted their job and I knew they were my people. But I still didn't make the connection. I'm an artist. Like I didn't claim that yet. I'm in retail management, whatever, because my closeted gay boyfriend's parents sent me there. So I'd be an asset to their clothing manufacturing business. So I'm there to learn something. But what I'm learning is I hate this job and I want their job. They made all my merchandise look pretty and they had so much fun doing it. And I, that's what I was excited about. So I was thinking about that. Like I knew. I was one that was my tribe. And yet I didn't claim it at age 22. Oh, well. So I took this next job turned out to be gray marketing was described as a boutique international marketing firm. So Harvard club of New York emergency dinner. My father says, this is great. This is so good. You don't have to pay for business school. You're being paid to learn how business is actually done. You were in the halls of power. You were having meetings at Fortune 500 companies. So that was the hint, Mm. but it was never spoken of again. Looking back.
0: He saw the back door was open. He saw
1: that I was going to figure out how to run a huge multinational corporation, but never really spelled it out for me. Didn't happen. I'm good with that. When my first husband told me to quit that job immediately, because it didn't reflect well on him as a junior associate at a law firm, I went back to art school. I started painting my friend's stuff, their mirror frames, their furniture, their curtains. I just started painting everything, you know, in my free time while figuring out what to do. That's what I always did. When I couldn't write my thesis, when I was having writer's block as a senior, just started painting everything in sight. Just, you know, clear my mind. Um, my mother spoke about her dance students at Wellesley and there was special emphasis, even though Allie McGraw was clearly the most beautiful, Betty Ball Lord was the paradigm of the Wellesley girl. And I was supposed to be a Wellesley girl. I was told many times I was a Wellesley girl. She married an ambassador. Mm hmm. Now, my grandfather noticed I was a linguist and said I might become an ambassador. But again, that that theme was never developed or discussed. I just remember that one comment from him. So, wife of an ambassador, that kind of thing. Go figure out how to do that. Go to Wellesley, go figure out how to outdo Betty, outshine Betty Boutlord. I knew she expected that. And there were criteria for her husband, as you know, and I found it on paper and yet did not meet with their approval. And then they had to figure out what to do about that. But that's a digression. Have I answered your question, Marianne?
0: Yeah, I think the reason that I brought that quote into the conversation is that I think that being a, well, being a person is hard, but being a child is very confusing Because the process of figuring out what you actually love and enjoy versus what you enjoy getting positive feedback around versus what's being encouraged in you, it's tricky. And so I just think that this concept, this idea of discovering your own unique gifts and valuing them yourself, as opposed to thinking like, oh, like I have this unique gift for this and like my dad will love that or like my friends will love that, you know? Because mm-hmm. you can, you can be uniquely gifted at something, which does also get you external positive feedback. Right. But this sort of closed loop of what are the unique gifts that I have that I also value? I think that's so important. It's like that that sweet spot where you're doing it just to satisfy yourself and you're willing to work on it just for your own joy of growth and you're willing to maybe even struggle with it just for your own satisfaction, Um, I find that process to be so challenging because there are so many pretty shiny things. And I think you probably experienced uh, this, like when you're naturally smart and talented, right? You're a young person. You can already read. You can already write. You can sing and play violin and all those things. It's almost like difficult to imagine what you couldn't be good at. Right. And so it adds this extra layer of uh, figuring out who we are and what we love. And to circle back to something that you said earlier, was it before we were rolling? It's hard to know. But earlier, um, we were talking about reflecting on your own childhood. I, yeah, it was during the you know primary source material conversation And I do a lot of reflecting. You know, I've been a mom since I was 18. So the childhood ended and then four seconds later, the reflecting began. And something that I learned quickly and which I try to explain to as many people as I can is that if you think that things were done, quote unquote, wrong in your childhood and you try to just reverse them because you think that the opposite of wrong is right, that's not a good method. No. And my example is that when I was a kid, I was praised for being gifted, gifted, gifted. And the ultimate sign of achievement was not having to work at something. Just mm-hmm. natu- naturally being good at it. Mm-hmm. Consequently, the minute anything was hard for me, I was like, well, that's not for me. Right. And then when I had my first child and she was smart, she is smart, she's brilliant and she's perfect and wonderful and magical. But when the time came for them to do the gifted and talented assessment, I exempted her from it. I was like, don't give my kid that test. Mm -hmm. I don't want her labeled as gifted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought I was doing her a big favor because my whole childhood, that label was forced on me. And I feel like it wasn't for the best. Mm -hmm. She internalized me pulling her from that test as I didn't think she was smart enough. Mm -hmm. We've now talked about it, right? But it's a great example of like, well, I didn't like how this was done. So I'll like flip it and reverse it. Mm -hmm. And that didn't work either. So mm-hmm. in the reflection process and the teasing out, who are we? It's like not good enough to just go, uh, you know, I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents yeah. want, for example.
1: Marion, if we got it right, there would be no more therapists. <laughs> it's therapists impossible. Are great. It, they are. <laughs> so my example of how I botched that, and I had the same impulse, like I'm going to protect my children from what was done to me, because it wasn't just what I was good at. It was what among the things I'm good at, are valuable Mm -hmm. and which are just kind of cute window Mm -hmm. dressing because I was being raised to be a trophy wife.
0: Right. That was
1: borderline explicit. And my hairdresser, as you know, said to me, (laughs) this is just your first wedding. It's just, you know, you're going to be an amazing trophy wife. Like this is a training, training marriage. (laughs) Just keep up the French and the horseback riding, the painting and all these other accoutrements. I said to my children, I just want you to live your dreams. So your job is to figure out what's your big dream and pursue it and be happy. I want you to have a happy life. I want you to be healthy, safe, like Nemo. Nothing should happen to you and you should be happy. Of course, you can't really appreciate that unless you suffer, but details. So... That is, that is the catechism that my children were raised on. And so now I have a child who is constantly asking, am I doing this happy thing, right? Am I happy enough? I'm not sure I'm happy enough. Am mm-hmm. I going to be happy? Is my life plan going to lead to happiness? I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I feel like I did that by accident.
0: Well, this points back to two things we were just talking about, which are critical to public health. One is friendship and that authentic feedback from people who know you. Yes. And the other is like having some kind of like deadline, timeline and like community enforcing like barriers, right? Like a community sort of coming together and saying like this is how it's done and it's okay for you to do it your Like your version of that. But I think as humans, we do crave like feedback, criticism, like some kind of approval, some kind of barrier because otherwise – I mean to put it like very crudely and bluntly, like if all we're chasing is happiness, we'd all just like be shooting up heroin until we die, right? Like if all you're chasing is that rush, right? There's or a pleasure. really – yeah, you know, pleasure. Like, really, what is happiness? Exactly. How and do how you much tease of it, it are
1: you supposed to have before you can say you have it? I mean, exactly. Someone asked me last night, who met me for the first time, even though we lived in the same dorm. Um, so she heard about the book, and she's like, "Okay, so you've achieved joy now. You like you've you've got it." And I was like, I have amassed uh, an uh, an extensive toolkit. So now I know how to bring joy into my life every day. It's not. It's like when you work out at the gym and you get fit. It's not like you're all set now. You don't have right. to go to the gym. <laughs> right. Now you know what to do at the gym to stay right. fit. So now I know what to do to connect with joy. I wouldn't be doing any of that if I just woke up joyful every morning. Nobody does. Right. So that's the thing my adult children have to figure out for themselves. My eldest actually asked me yesterday, and I hope you're not upset for if you're listening to this that I'm saying this, but I think it's it was a big moment for me. Asked me at the end of our lovely conversation yesterday if I could just send them the vibe of you're doing enough and you haven't, made mis- you haven't made a mistake. And I said, well, you're definitely doing enough. And if you did less, you'd still be doing enough. You're amazing. But you're human, and you're going to make mistakes. And you've made mistakes. And you can, can always make mistakes. And when you read my book, you'll see that a lot of it is about self-correcting and figuring out, wow, this isn't working for me I have maybe strayed from my true path and I have stumbled like everyone does and I have to figure out my way back. That's really what we're here to do. It's our personal journey. We are the hero and we are the our own t- our greatest teacher. our mistakes are. So what I said yesterday is, make mistakes, learn from them. And the great thing is if you don't learn from them, it'll be repeated. <laughs> you get more chances. Don't worry. <laughs> that that lesson will come back as many times as you need it to. <laughs> so the important thing is to have compassion. That's what I said. The important thing is when you make mistakes, be compassionate with yourself. And we, the eye contact was broken on the FaceTime call. For the rest of the call, there was no eye contact. I felt terrible because I was hurting or disappointing my child. But I value integrity and I know I'm going to be quoted back to myself. So I can't compromise what I believe. I have to say only what I believe. Or how come you said I didn't make a mistake? If you could tell me what mistake you're referring to, we could discuss it. But if you want me to give you blanket approval of everything you've ever done or thought, I can't do that. But I also should not do that. Right. Because I was seeking my parents' approval. That's why I made all these choices. It's not that I had poor judgment. It's that it was more important for me to supersede my judgment because I was seeking approval. That That's the tragedy of my first 30 years. And so here I'm seeing a child in their 20s. And I'm the, God, the parent God because I haven't been fully dethroned yet. I would like to be. But I haven't been. So... My approval is being sought, and I refuse to claim that power. And I'm proud that I'm refusing. And I wanted to clarify in a text afterwards, but I was told, do not send me a text. I see your three dots.
0: <laughs> and I block I block your three dots. Wow.
1: Yeah, so that's adult parenting.
0: Yeah. So one of the... I mean, listen, we're here talking because we know each other, because you wrote a book. But this podcast, broadly speaking, is about reinfusing personal narratives and lived experiences into public health topics or topics that I think of as public health topics that don't get street cred as public health topics. And one of the things that I've already told you that came up a lot in this book, and I think is related to this conversation that we were just having, and the one with your child, is intergenerational trauma. Because of course, one of those major traumas is seeking the approval of a parent, Mm -hmm. and not maybe, even if you do get it, maybe not getting it the way that you wanted to get it, right? Mm -hmm. which is traumatic in its own way. And we've all experienced that. So I would love to hear you, uh, you know, as a woman, as a mother, as someone with sort of a unique uh, genealogical past, which we don't have to spoil it per se, but just say that, um, you know, this is a theme in the book is some sort of like trauma and secrets in the family line. Right. What role do you think um, intergenerational trauma is playing in our Society, and how do you think the public health system could maybe start to address that? Wow, easy questions here today. <laughs> <That's so big. laughs>
1: I mean, when when I heard some of the questions you were thinking about when you first sent me readbacks, I I said to you, "How many hours do we have?" They are such huge questions. So here's the really: as soon as we leave the book, we're in these huge question dimension, and right. I'm not in any position to write public health policy, but maybe I should. You know, I mean, President Gore would have. I think he he certainly spelled out his plan to bring mental health into the center of what our government is helping us with. And I was really excited about that. Married to a mental health professional, I thought this was going to be very good for his career, too. We should have much better mental health care coverage. My book is a a book of a mental health journey of a person who, who stops seeking approval, shatters everything that they had set up, their little... Class house or whatever, and when when everything is broken, then then I gave myself permission to just take care of myself and be happy without any without seeking anybody's because I had lost it already already blown it so now I can get on with my life. Um, therapists have been really important to me, and I'm so privileged to have good health insurance. Um, even when I was paying Cobra after my first marriage, I knew that was, you know, it was still a great investment. Um, people joked that I was bringing therapy in house when I married my husband, my second husband. It does not work that way. Unfortunately, I was hoping it did, but it doesn't work that way at all. Um, so I do, I do see a therapist every week and and when she's not traveling. Um, so right there that just people don't have access and there are not enough people are going into the field, as we saw during the pandemic, the early stages of the pandemic, when people came out of retirement just to take other people's credit card information. That was really sad. Um. So I don't know if that's an answer because I don't know how to make this happen. But the shame of needing therapeutic support needs to be eradicated. All shame needs to be eradicated. I know you know I feel this way. Shame is one of the, the worst forces in the universe. So being able to ask for help, know that you need help. We all need help. It should be just like nutrition. You mm-hmm. know, nutrition is fundamental. We agree on that. It is as essential to our life, to living well, is that there's mental nutrition. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And I think... um So I had this – I went to school for nutrition, like holistic nutrition, when I was 20. Mm -hmm. I was inspired by my daughter because she was born – I was a teenager. She had a lot of allergies. I wanted to figure it out. But it was this, you know, kind of hippie school. And so we did nutrition and and food, but we – they talked about like primary foods, like relationships and spirituality and and physical activity and such. And one day we had some group – exercise where we had to split off into pairs I truly forget the prompt right but I turned to the person next to me and I said I think that traumas that we don't deal with in our lifetime get given to our children And so I think that it's important in our own lifetime that we do as much work as we can to release our own shame and guilt and Mm -hmm. traumatic Mm -hmm. memories and those that we may have picked up from an ancestor because I don't want to keep the cycle going and and give it to my kid. And and they were kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And then a few years later, the science of epigenetics comes out, right? And so now we have this sort of scientific language to describe what is inherently intergenerational trauma. So I love what you're saying about therapy. And I also will add that it's my personal hope that we um, take it to like a a scientific level and look for epidemiological trends. Um, Obviously, things like poor nutrition can register as a trauma in the body and can be passed down just through hereditary measures. Um, But things like, you know, for example, like children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors right. have certain epigenetic trauma markings and are more inclined to have things like autoimmune disease and depression and, and this kind of stuff. So I just hope that, um, I mean, I so agree that shame is, is uh, it's the least productive thing that a person can feel. Yeah, Because especially in my own experience, and I think this is probably universal, shame comes from this place of, really believing that you're the only person who could possibly have ever dealt with this so no one else could possibly understand. And that's so hilarious. Like the minute you let yourself get out of that sort of fight or flight trauma response and Mm -hmm. zoom out, of course your human experience is universal. But in that moment of shame, it's like, I can't talk about this because clearly it's so bad that no one else has ever felt it. And so I just have to keep it to myself. Well, I was told
1: to keep it to myself.
0: Right. And I'm still
1: being told, my my mother told me about my genealogical discovery, just keep it to yourself. She rejects it. And when I tried to talk about it, she said, I said, I noticed that you seem really uncomfortable and unhappy when I try to share my enthusiasm about it. And she's like, yeah, I'd rather you just keep it to yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I screwed up in college and got kicked out, she said, do not tell anyone and do not tell mama and papa. That was huge. Being silenced like that from the people I knew loved me unconditionally, like the only people I knew of who loved me unconditionally. That was the worst. And as you know, it wasn't until I went and talked to mental health professionals with an eating disorder clinic at Columbia University, one session, people think that's crazy that I didn't get treatment, but it it was disordered eating is any eating that's not just eating eating when you're hungry and eating food that's good for you when you're hungry, right? So people say, oh, I don't have an eating disorder, but I spent a period of time where I weighed 90 pounds because I couldn't eat because I was upset because my husband left me. Well, to me, we don't have to label it, but it's disordered eating. Right. It's not a diagnosis. It's just disordered. Um, So the Holocaust and that whole thing, I, I'm fascinated by that because I feel like how do we parse out? How much of it is genetics and how much of it is just the cloud of Holocaust education? Because Holocaust education is scary and dark and traumatic. And it's heaped on us from around age 10. So that, to me, is a problem. Like, we need to know this, but the way it's delivered and the way it impacts us as we're developing our identity is troubling to me. So I don't know where one, where they intersect or, but I see the problems in the way I was parented as being fear-based. And I think the, um, emphasis on, on building wealth, it's not just that we value education. We also, as a, the Jewish people I'm talking about, um, non-Jewish people are always asking me to explain Judaism to them. And I don't know, I'm a very accessible Jew, apparently, Uh, (laughs) um, Tell me, I've been asked several times, can you explain why people hate you? Your people, please tell me why everyone hates you, my late friend Bo said to me one day out of the blue. Wow. Um, Again, softball questions. Another, right, I was going to (laughs) say, this is not my first time having big questions I'm not prepared to answer. Uh, So I keep getting these, people feel comfortable sharing their theories with me. Is it because... Uh, there's an opinion that you guys are the scum of the earth and you're trying to disprove it. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I answered that person recently by saying, I think it's because we're we're held together by this book. And when we lose everything, which we repeatedly do, we've lost our temple. We lost our temple again. We lost our home. We we're kicked out of every country. We may be kicked out of this country. It's quite possible. So what what can you not take away from somebody? Their education, their DNA. And their education, so we value it. But we also clearly value financial security. And I feel like it's a protective measure. Like we're not safe in the world, so we better have some gold coins in our ro- sewn in the hems of our robes when we leave. Put diamonds in your hems. I know people who left South Africa like that. Um. So there's that. And then you know, on the other side of my family, there's presumed rape trauma. So that has been studied more, I think, the way a traumatic environment for of a womb of a of a mother, a tra- traumatized mother during pregnancy, that tra- traumatic gestation impacts the fetus and then if, you're, if you really win the lottery and you lose that traumatized mother at birth and you're given away and you're not told that that is your history, you are a very confused baby and a very traumatized baby and a very emotionally handicapped person. And so understanding that, which came out of the investigative work of memoir. So that's a gift that memoir has given me that... Um, primary source. I want to get to the root of who I am, where I came from, answer questions that I don't have information. So the digging, as you know, led to healing for me. Deep healing, I know for my self-concept as my father's daughter, but I I believe healing for his soul because I feel like we're still in relationship. And he is aware of the work that I'm doing, and I th- I hope that it's true because I love my father, and I I um I think that we both understand better how much he was up against and why it was so difficult to be him in this recent life yeah. that he had.
0: So yeah, that um reminds me of another sort of concept from the book on page 250 you talked about the fact that as humans we tend to believe that love is a scarce resource and you say that it's not so can you tell me a little bit more about the availability of love the endless nature of love i'm
1: happy to um yeah that was the most toxic and and that relates to shame you're not you know you are shameful and that is synonymous with not worthy of love and love will be withheld from you until you rectify the situation right um so i was just thinking back how i was talking but i'm not sure if i told the listeners about when I explained getting kicked out of college had led to my medicating with food that they were like, Oh yeah, we have lots of those clients. And then they started talking about specific individuals with affection who had been kicked out for plagiarizing for this or yeah. Delusions of grandeur. Like they just talked about all this stuff that to me was so heavy And they were just like, yeah, this is adolescence. This is what happens when a gifted child goes out in the world to figure out who they are and how they're going to make their way. And I was like, it is?
0: (laughs) I'm normal? Oh, my God.
1: That's a big identity shift, right? Like, I had never been told I was
0: normal. (laughs) Not just uniquely shameful? (laughs) Right.
1: So that was my entire eating disorder treatment.
0: Okay, so back to this
1: question, which was? Abundance versus scarcity. Yes. So, I have a pizza pie. I don't know if you noticed it in my book. I drew a pizza. Did you see it? I think it was so. subtle. Yeah. It had heart shaped pepperonis on it. And there's a slice missing because I was raised that you have to earn each slice of love, each kiss or nice word. I'm so grateful for my teachers, all my teachers. And I i don't know where it began. I think just getting unconditional love was a, the first little glimmer, repeatedly finding, nurturing older women who, lo- who clearly loved me just because I showed up as Nancy. Um, I was often taken away from them rather traumatically. I was taken out of my Montessori school and I didn't want to go. And had to win over a different type of teacher. I was taken away from my first violin teacher and I didn't want to leave her. But just kept finding these women, which is a form of self, a high form of self-care, a great impulse. Um, <clears throat> Brian Weiss is the first author I remember, or the Mr. Rogers is all about unconditional love.
0: Of course. Thank you, Fred.
1: What a great preacher. The preacher of PBS. Yes. Um, but another another preacher, a Jewish psychiatrist, Brian Weiss, who old school, Yale trains, I think he was on the faculty of the University of Florida, textbook author, could not be more conservative in his practices and beliefs. And he, do you know
0: Brian Weiss? I'm not sure. I don't think so.
1: Well, he was getting um these weird messages. He thought of them as utterances from his patients when he did hypnosis as part of their mm-hmm. psychiatric care. And it was becoming increasingly uncomfortable because you know how we talked about how mistakes get repeated if you don't learn from them? Well, these messages were getting louder and more aggressive. That spirit wanted him to share what he was learning from the messages. And he was like, that's not what I was trained to do. <laughs> Nobody will respect me. I will lose my job, my status. I will lose my, my beautiful life. Until it became impossible. That's what happens when we don't listen. So Brian became a a preacher of messages from what he calls the Masters, ascended Masters. I I call on them on my during my sessions, not during our angel card reading, but when I induce people into trance in in soul empowered hypnosis. I call on ascended Masters, and I know about them from Brian Weiss, and he published seven best selling books about their messages, which are about love. I mean, that's really what spirit wants us to know. And it shows up in all my sessions. That's why I'm addicted to doing this practice. Um, Eben Alexander, I am drawn very, I will just, it's so obvious, I'll just point it out. I'm drawn to people like my father who were trained to be allopathic practitioners of medicine if they went to Yale or Harvard, even better. This is like my dad tribe. So Mm -hmm. I'm drawn to the dad tribe. But unlike my father, they've gone through transformational experiences while alive, totally changed their worldview. They chuck that training because they've had a breakthrough experience. For, For Eben Alexander, it was an NDE during a coma that he says only occurs in infants. But it happened to him as an adult, as a neurosurgeon, as a professor of neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School, and shifted his worldview 180 degrees. And he is now a preacher of love is all around us. And I sort of made up a script when I became a Reiki healer in 2007. We were encouraged to say nice, relaxing things. And what was relaxing to me, and I do believe I was channeling it, was know that you're surrounded by love. Everything you need is just beside you. It's as close as your breath. You can plug into that whenever you want. Plug in your consciousness to the fact that you are surrounded by an abundant supply of love. So it's very similar to what I say now, which is something like, what do I say? I have to get into that headspace. I just, truth just comes up when you stop resisting any, when you stop controlling your thoughts so if you give me a moment i'll try to get there should i try to do that sure do we have time yeah okay we can edit we have to do a session sometime yeah okay i'm in so we've relaxed we've focused on our breath for a few minutes and we've brought our attention to our heart center and we're imagine i'm speeding this up this is a little preview of what i would say slowly the spinning light in your heart center is emanating a loving energy in every direction that extends beyond your chest cavity to fill the room, expands, extends itself beyond the walls of the dwelling that you're in and connects into an infinite golden circuitry of loving energy that wraps around our planet, into which every living creature on the planet is plugged in, whether we're aware of it or not. So consciously plug into that beautiful circuitry, connect with the swirling, abundant love that surrounds you and flows through you. And then we send an invitation out from our heart center to all of our ascended masters, ancestors, spirit guides, angels who are surrounding us and waiting for this moment to communicate with us and share their loving energy, healing wisdom, and guidance. And then we just take some time to complete that invitation. And we know the person feels it. And when it's complete, we enjoy a visit with whatever entity or message comes through and just go from there. It's so much fun. It's all about love. And I've connected as a client, which I do at least once a month, put myself in the client role with one of my colleagues, and this will be my next book, by the way, Um, we're going to curate. A collection of spirit messages because they're all curated for the two people in the session. It's it's obvious. There's always humor, Um, humor and love, or playfulness, always present. And um, we know now that we've set this intention of co-authoring this book. My colleague and I, with whom I mostly exchange sessions, um, we know that we're going to be receiving more content that's for this book which is really exciting because our first session after sort of coming to this intention was like, oh my gosh, everyone needs to know this. And I won't get into the details, but it's all the same. And I said, you know, is this redundant? Is our book going to be redundant? Yes. But everyone picks up a different version of it, right? The Bible, the Quran, whatever. You're going to pick up a different version of the truth, and the truth is god is love we are all from love we're always connected to love there are all these things all these challenges in this complicated beautiful planet that we're on this we choose to come and struggle here and learn but we're really it's a classroom the lesson is love this is a weird classroom <laughs> as you know <laughs> i've been here longer but i know you already know and we we're here doing these lessons and I love that I get to be a teacher of this beautiful truth. And when I, I was starting to say when I've recently, as a client, had this moment, I think I might have been asking about how to market my book. I told you that I'm just supposed to allow it and surrender. Just let it just, it's parenting. I birthed the book and it's not part of me anymore. Right. So I'm not going to go around like a crazy, like a stage mother, right? I'm not a stage mother for the book. The book is having its life. And here we are talking about it, which is beautiful and natural. Um, So I'm just going to go with the flow. But when I was asking about that, I connected to this incredible feeling. And, And I always see colors. A lot of people see goddesses and Moses. I'm like, oh my gosh, really? I love hearing when people see. I see color. I see, my, my visions are like lava lamps. And this was just an overwhelming visual. And I remember my face hurting from smiling. I was tears streaming down my face and my face just hurt from smiling. And what I said to Rita because I'm always the client has to find the strength to describe what's happening while it's happening so we can get it on the record and I'm like this is just a reminder of where we come from and and feeling this much love I'm realizing um we would never do anything if we were always aware of how much love there is for us Like, we're going to go back to that after we're done with this work here in the classroom. I know we go back to that. And it's amazing and wonderful. But it's like if you had an orgasm going on, would you, like, pay bills during that? You (laughs) You would just go with it. Right. And you would not be motivated to do or change anything. So just experiencing intense love that makes your face hurt from smiling you would never learn, develop. Your soul wants to struggle. I mean, I think of Israel. Like, I can't help how Jewishly I think when people are like, oh, so you're going to market this to Jews? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very Jewish. I think it's very Jewish. Um, struggling with God, that's how Jacob got a new name, Israel, and that's the name of us, right? We We struggle with God. To me, that means we struggle with this question are we lovable? How can we be lovable? What is love? How do I get it? But it's, it's all an illusion. All of these questions are an illusion. Wow. That was a big answer. Thanks
0: for going on that ride with me though. I like big answers. Okay, good. And it, um, what came up for me when you were saying that is like sort of like touching back to the intergenerational trauma, but then also this like big question of are we loved? Are we lovable? And like becoming ourselves in a lifetime, I feel like sometimes, well you mentioned these practitioners that you meet who maybe have an allopathic background but then during their lifetime had an aha moment and shifted. And I just think like for some people um the jump happens across one lifetime and for others it takes two or three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like you are the extension of your father. Yes. You're making that leap on his behalf. That's exactly how I feel. And um in In my path, you know, I was a teen mom and uh, definitely didn't come from a background where that was acceptable <laughs> mm-hmm. but lucky for me um sort of perfect divine timing when I got pregnant, my grandmother had just passed and the second she passed, this big family secret came out that she had had a baby before she was married and had been forced to give it away. Mm-hmm. And so my mom, having just learned this thing about her mother, was like... Your mom had just learned it. My mom had just oh, learned this it. this
1: was a posthumous It was revelation. a family
0: secret oh. that only a couple cousins had gotten oh. wind of and kept tightly. Okay. The minute grandma dies, they're like, hey, just so you know, she has a daughter and she lives in a different city and we know her name. Wow. And it was this huge revelation. But what it caused for my mom was like, she was like, okay, I'm not going to repeat that generational trauma so she was able to instantly say to me i support you i love you you're going to be a teen mom we're going to do it together it's great whereas I mean, no shade to my mom, but if that big secret hadn't come out, maybe there would have been a longer learning curve. She tried to do the right thing and she wouldn't know
1: what the right thing was. Exactly.
0: So I think like in my grandmother's case, it took a couple lifetimes for that trauma to come back around Mm -hmm. and for it to be given a chance to leap forward. Mm -hmm. In your dad's case, right? The leap is happening in two lifetimes. In these doctors with the aha moments, it's happening across one. So there's always this chance like... In life, there are these cycles, right? Nature has cycles. Female bodies have cycles. Uh The moon has a cycle. Like there are cycles everywhere we turn, and healing is a cycle. And sometimes it takes, uh, you know, a longer orbit, right? Everyone's every planet's orbit is a slightly different length, and every person's healing journey is at a slightly different pace. And sometimes. Sometimes it's not possible to heal all your trauma before you have kids, right? Especially if you have a kid at 19. Oh, right. <laughs> but certainly... Ugh, uh, if only we could grow up before we had kids. Can oh you boy. imagine the world? Yeah. Have you seen... There's like a meme that's popular right now. It's like a picture of, you know, a millennial. And it's like my generation parenting ourselves and our parents and our children all at the same time. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's some image of someone mm-hmm. like careening off a cliff <laughs> or something. But, you know, we are... We're, our generation like or in this moment i would say it's not really generationally rooted but in this moment as a society we're having this conversation about how to reparent how to parent how to grow and we're just being more honest with ourselves exactly. we had we yeah. put
1: our parents on a pedestal right. 100 years ago 60 years ago right so it was an illusion of the parent as god and all knowing right. but they were just big old
0: kids But maybe there's a lesson there about God also, right? You know, you said earlier, like, parent God, Mm -hmm. and we see parents as God. But maybe part of the lesson is, like, there's no reason to put God on a pedestal. Like, if God is all around us and, you know, we come from love and we're made of love and we go back to love and God is love, then, Mm -hmm. then like, maybe, you know, it's all just connected. And we need to learn how to see more of ourselves in that. And uh,
1: I do put God on a pedestal, but it's not the... It's not the mean, punishing, vengeful, bloodthirsty God.
0: Yeah. That's
1: that's who our old school parents are modeled on. Right. Like, do this or else. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, because I said so. and Eat and now, the consequence. sleep now. Right. hmm Maybe, because we could really, truly talk for an unlimited amount of time on the big themes, but maybe I'm going to bring it back to another quote from the book. Because this one meant a lot to me. Um, It's on page 301. So, you know, closing in towards the end of the book. Everybody
1: go to your page 301. Everyone pick up
0: your copy of Instigator of Joy and open it to page 301. Actually, maybe I will. I have my notes in front of me, but let's, let's grab the source material here. Oh, Miriam. Yes, it's from this woman, Miriam. Love her name. I get called Miriam all the time. That's it's a combination of my Jesus name being is... Marian and looking Jewish enough that they assume it's Miriam.
1: But you know, Jesus's mother was Miriam. Oh, really? Miriam. He was uh, Yeshua, which uh, is now Joshua, right? And she was Miriam, oh. which is turned into Mary.
0: Well, my whole by the life miracle
1: of the English language.
0: My whole life, if I looked up my name in a name book, it was just like from Mary, Mother of God. So yeah, that used to bother me, but now I kind of like it. Good. I'm like, yeah, yeah I, had a, I had a virgin cool. birth too. Yes. Um. Okay. Page 301. I'll read the whole paragraph. Okay. During our calls, Miriam resumed her habit of reminding me to write my story and publish a book, as she used to do at the end of our face-to-face visits years ago, adding what struck me as a very Jewish-sounding mantra, if you help just one person, it will have been worth your trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that. And frankly, that's really kind of why I do everything that I do. Um, I really believe in the ripple effect, that if you change one person's day for the better, then they can go out and change one person's day for the better and Mm -hmm. on and on and on. So let me ask, how does it feel? You know, how does it feel to be doing that work to be um, and with this book, maybe scaling it even a little bit, right?
1: That's the idea. I can't see very many clients. It's very time consuming. Um, And also it makes me so happy that I don't want to pay bills. So I can only do a little bit each day. I do want to spread my message and the things that I've learned. And I already see that I'm doing that. It's so gratifying. Interestingly, some people are booking sessions, which is great. But there is a limit to how much of that benefit will result from the book. Um, I think that there's nothing more gratifying than knowing you're being helpful. It's always been a big part of my personality, um to want to make another person's day better. even letting Lillian take the buttons off my dress at Montessori School made me feel really happy. Yeah, because I didn't care about them. She did. So that's a net like redistributing. That's what the whole, I'm a huge buy nothing participant in Tacoma Park. We're always like putting up things we're not using. They're not sparking joy. Instead of throwing them away, we're putting them on buy nothing. It's so great because it gets to see someone excited about something that is no longer serving me. So now I'm sharing something that I am excited about and people are telling me it's helpful. It feels wonderful. Um, So my Miriam was a devout Christian. And when she said that to me, it reminds me of the Jewish law that says, um, you know, keep the Sabbath, um, make it holy. I don't remember how it goes, but the idea is, you know, there are all these laws that observant Jews follow. And I wasn't raised following them, like not igniting a flame, which means you can't drive a car or cook. but. All of those prescriptions um, are superseded if somebody needs your help. Like if somebody's, if you're going to save a life, then forget all of those rules because the most important thing is saving a life. If you save a life, you save the world. I think that's in the Talmud. So I do think that sharing my true story is powerful and healing. When people recognize themselves in my story and they say to me, wow, this is this is my story. This is my childhood. This is reminding me and bringing things up and helping me look at it in a different way. I'm so happy because I was... When I learned that I belong not to just one small tribe, but two small tribes, I was like, oh, I, I joked. I just doubled my demographic. But actually... They're such different, or they seem to be such different tribes. What I realize it means is that I, I'm being nudged to change my self-concept, that I am of humanity, because that's really the best way to think of ourselves. Normal, whether we're gifted or not, normal humans struggling with the essence of what it is to be alive on this planet and of humanity. Because we all, every pair of people that meet, have so much more in common than we have different. And that's that's the root misunderstanding that's causing all the strife, including the Holocaust, that we don't understand, that we're really the same. Dogs know this, but we have trouble with it. (laughs) What else is new? (laughs) We have so much to learn from dogs about napping, sniffing each other, you know, so many things. but Um, And unconditional love. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Enthusiasm for food. Anyway, I could go on. Um, pets, being pet. Um, I I can't remember what you asked me. Mary. Well, Miriam's Oh yes, yes. Helping. Um. Your podcast, the ripple effect. You want me to talk about the ripple
0: effect? Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't have prepared remarks about the ripple effect, but I have taught. I have. I used to travel and teach people aromatherapy. And I and I love teaching people who had followings because that's the ripple effect. Like I teach you and you're going to share with all your massage clients. I teach you you're going to all your whatever students like these. I was attracting leaders of, of the holistic healing kind. That was so exciting to me because first I got anointed as a teacher, anointed. Wow, I didn't even say that on purpose, but that's when you have oil put on you. So I was a priestess of oil and I and I got promoted to this this multi-level marketing um status that I was I was authorized to go teach people this um this beautiful healing technique. And then the 20 people I taught would go share it with you know each of them with dozens or hundreds of people. That was very, very gratifying. So, I would gladly drive to Pencil- Pennsylvania, Delaware, Texas. I didn't, I flew to Texas. Don't try to fly with a massage table. It's a hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause it's heavy. That was really stupid.
0: Lesson learned. <laughs> that I don't think that was ever going to come up for me, but now I'm prepared. <laughs> now, this I'm is ready. the not thinking ahead thing. Yeah. Just like,
1: I got my bags and oh, I'll grab my massage table because that's really handy. Yes. Because I'm strong. I can walk to the metro carrying a right. massage table, no problem. You, you remember when this. I met you? I didn't realize you were going to give me this kit yeah. for how to share soup. And you're like, how- where's your car parked? I'm like, I took the metro. Okay, well, you're going to be walking back to
0: the metro <laughs> with an oven. In your blue bathing with a suit. suit. <laughs> This is a theme. It just keeps bringing, <laughs> I'll keeps have you know, back. I
1: learned from my Caribbean vacations how to get back to the metro. I put everything you gave me on top of my head.
0: Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see? Picking up the signal. So signals. I
1: stayed in alignment.
0: So I realized I, I have one more question, um, which I'm excited to ask. And it it points back to a part in the book Um you know, in the book, you detail this process of leaving your first marriage. And, you know, you were fairly young. You were in a, you know, not your hometown, right? Your ex-husband's hometown. so miles from home. Yes, far from home, not your territory, not your tribe, not your turf. And you took a leap. And um, there was bravery. There was vulnerability. There was surrender, right, involved in all right. of that. But from that came so much growth, joy, abundance, right? Um, Immediately. Immediately. You made the space for it and you dove headfirst into what was next. So um, I felt like that was a recurring theme in the book, is sort of like making that space for diving into what's next. And so I ask you, the person who's not, great at anticipating the future, per se, by your own admission. Um, What's next now? You know, looking ahead, that energy, that cycle in your life of diving into the next thing. You've written the book. It's living its own life, as you say. Um, What's next? What are you you up to? And and what do you see?
1: Can I ask your indulgence to answer uh, something you didn't ask but mentioned about that leap? Yeah. Somebody I met at the University of Cincinnati Law School. I can picture him, but I can't think of his name. He handed me this passage by Goethe, and it was about how um I'm gonna totally botch it, so I shouldn't try to parap- quote Heavily paraphrase. Heavily paraphrased. <laughs> yeah. But it was about if you if you take action, then the universe responds. But you, you can't wait for the universe to do the thing. Like, you have to take the first step.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He saw my stuckness. Like, I thought really nobody knew me. I was just this weird person who left early to to um, express milk in the bathroom in between classes. <laughs> this old lady. I was in my, you know, mid-20s instead of 22. Um he he wanted to give me something he found inspiring in his life, and it really did. And I unpacked it and put it on my cabinet, my kitchen cabinet, when I first moved into my single mom apartment. And it was absolutely true. I felt everything shift around me to support this leap that I had taken. Um, so your question. So I just think that's really beautiful that somebody took a risk, extended themselves, gave me this, this weird German thing to read in English. Yeah. Um, and that's love. That's like knowing that you're connected, like feeling that in your heart and just acting from your heart and doing this maybe wacky thing. But what the hell? Um. So I hope he's listening and sees the ripple effect of handing me that. That um, mimeographed paper. Yeah. Let's see. Your question was about the future. Okay. So I'm going on. I'm going along in the journey, trying not to be a pushy stage mother, but basking in the life of my book because I think this book is already having a beautiful life. I know I'm enjoying this conversation immensely, and it was this was the catalyst for us to sit and talk together. We could have done this earlier without the book. So true. But we're here now. I'm delighted to be here. So this is the kind of experience I look forward to, and I'm not going to force it. I was actually advised by Spirit that I should be grateful that not everyone's finding out about the book on the same day, because that could be really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it will be overwhelming, or it it could be. I will be getting invitations that conflict with one another, and I just need to get into that really centered Um place in my my heart and head aligned and feel what it's like to accept invitation A and then feel what it's like to accept invitation B and just go with what feels right, which is really how you go through life. There are always different conflicting messages and invitations, but I've told specifically about this book. Just feel into it and don't worry. You can't accept all the invitations. It's an exciting message that hasn't happened yet, but I know it will. So because life is an adventure and I've sometimes painted that on the wall, um, I'm looking forward to the next part of my adventure with my book baby. And I'm also really excited to be co-creating a book with Rita because as you know, I've mostly been a solo act, whether I'm serving up soup or painting a mural or leading hypnosis session or teaching art to babies, I am the show. So I'm very excited to be collaborating at least every month as we co-create my next book of Astral Playdates, Spirit Messages.
0: Awesome. Well, Nancy, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. I am glad that the book was a catalyst for our conversation. I hope it's not the last one. And I look forward to watching the journey of the book and the next book. And I just want to reflect one last time on some of our themes for this conversation, Um, you know, intergenerational trauma, control, love, self-love, identity. I think all of these things are so critical to health, to public health um, and to happiness, whatever that big word might mean. So I'm very appreciative that we were able to examine all of that and uh, surrender. We got pretty far down on the
1: list. I wouldn't mind having a separate conversation about access to abortion and the impact of bodily autonomy on women's lives and health.
0: Yes. And that's a great teaser for me anytime. This book is chocked full of rich topics. So make sure we will put links down below for where to find everything, where to find your work. And uh, and yeah, I'm just very grateful for this conversation. I'm very
1: grateful as well. Thank you so much, Mary. It was a pleasure.
0: My pleasure as well. Thank you once again for listening to the Marian Flaxman Network Podcast, a podcast dedicated to reintroducing personal narratives into critical public health topics. For more information on me, Marian, please visit my website at marianflaxman.com. For more information on today's guest, Nancy Illman, Please find the links in the show notes. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.